when we're struggling with something, our tendency is to reach out to someone who can show us empathy. That's a good start for support, but it's insufficient. On this episode, the science behind finding helpful advisors. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 516. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. One of the pieces of advice that many of us have heard is the importance of seeking out mentors, seeking out advisors, seeking out those who will help us to work through tough situations, both professionally and personally. And that news isn't uh, news to anyone, but what may be news is that that doesn't always work the way that we want it to. How can we really get useful direction and advice from advisors that doesn't just make us feel good, but also is actually going to help us move forward? Today's guest is an expert on this, is going to help us to really take the next steps to benefit as much as possible from the advisors in our life. I'm so thrilled to welcome Ethan Cross to the show today. He's one of the world's leading experts on controlling the conscious mind. He's an award-winning professor at the University of Michigan's top-ranked psychology department and its Ross School of Business, where he studies how the conversations people have with themselves impact their health, performance, decisions, and relationships. His research has been featured in Science, the New England Journal of Medicine, and the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. He's been featured by Good Morning America, NPR's Morning Edition, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, Harvard Business Review, and many other publications. He's the author of the new book, Chatter, The Voice in Our Head, Why It Matters, and How to Harness It. Ethan, I'm so glad to welcome you to the show. So excited to be here, Dave. Well, I uh, was reading the book, and it is fascinating, and I can't wait to get into this conversation with you. And the story that really caught my attention is a story that you tell about yourself, where the story ends with you Googling the phrase bodyguards for academics. (laughs) And I was wondering if you could share- a high moment in my my career. I wondered if you could, if you're willing to share that story and just a a bit about what led to that, because I think that that highlights a bit of what Chatter's about. Sure. So about um, a little over 10 years ago, my colleagues and I had published a study uh, showing how in the brain, so the experience of social pain shares some similarity with the experience of physical pain. And this study got a lot of attention. I went on the, the evening news. It was really exciting. It was my first time on the evening news. Had had a whole 10-second soundbite. And life was really good. And then a couple of days later, I I walked into my office on the University of Michigan's campus and and I basically received, um, you know, a really threatening letter in the mail, the likes of which I have never received before, nor do I ever aspire to receive again. And, you know, it was a really serious letter, the kind that I ended up having to go to the police station, talk to officers and, and the whole nine yards. And it really shook me. I had just, my wife and I just had our first child. I felt like I had put everyone at risk. There was no real solution to, for how to deal with the letter. The advice the the police officer gave me when I went to to speak to her about it was to to make sure I don't drive home the same way 
to my house from work each day, which Dave is a little tricky because I lived at the time four blocks from, from, from work. So not too many permutations on that. (laughs) Um, so, so for a couple of nights I was just, I was on edge and I had, you know, reverted to protector mode and was pacing the house with my little league baseball bat, peering out the window, you know, at three in the morning. And at one point in the middle of the night, I, I actually thought to myself, bodyguards for academics. And, um, <laughs> and that was actually a moment that the, it was the experiencing that thought, which, you know, my mind was just over and over and over racing with what if this happens? What am I going to do? What if someone comes to get us chatter, which we'll talk a little bit about more later, I'm sure. But when I thought to myself, the, the bodyguards for academics bit, I mean, it's so ridiculous that actually helped snap me out of that funk and actually highlighted some interesting scientific tools that uh, turns out we've gone on to study that can be useful for helping other people when they experience chatter as well. So, so yeah, I, I run a lab called the Self-Control and Emotion Lab. We spend all our time studying chatter and guess what? I can experience it at times too, just like I think most people who are listening can. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that because I think it really shows that we all struggle with this. And, you know, you speaking of family, you mentioned your dad in the book a bunch. And uh, you write early in the book, my father's rationale was that cultivating the skill of introspection would help me through whatever challenging situations I encountered. Deliberate self-reflection would lead to wise, beneficial choices, and by extension, to positive emotions. In other words, going inside was the route to a resilient, fulfilling life. This made perfect sense, except that, as I would soon learn, for many people, it was completely wrong. What is it about introspection that we've got wrong? Well, you know, some people think introspection is an amazing gift. Others think it's a curse. I think it's both. And I try to explain that in chatter. So our ability to divorce ourselves from the moment, to let our mind wander, to go back in time, to think about the future, uh, and to use words as we traverse those spaces, um, this is an amazing superpower as far as I'm concerned. This capacity to introspect, to reflect on our lives, this is the underlies our ability to problem solve, to innovate, and to create. It helps us control ourselves. It helps it helps give rise to the stories that shape who we are, our identities. But it's also something that can get us into trouble because sometimes we go introspect, we go inside to introspect, in particular when we're experiencing negativity when bad things happen, and rather than come up with solutions to our problems we end up spinning instead. We worry, we ruminate, we catastrophize, which which I use the term chatter to capture. So what chatter is, is it, it captures the negative cycle of thinking and feeling that takes this amazing capacity to introspect and it turns it into a curse rather than a blessing. And, and it can really undermine us in a variety of ways. It can make it difficult for us to focus at work and perform well. It can create friction in our social relationships, make us more aggressive, make us less fun to be around. And there's research showing that it can also interfere with our physical health because it leads us to experience stressors, but then keep on experiencing them over and over and over by replaying them in our minds in ways that can exert a real wear and tear on our bodies. So what do people get wrong about introspection? I think if you think about it as 
de facto good or bad, you're getting it wrong. Introspection is a tool and tools can be useful if they're used the right way. A hammer is an amazing tool, right? It can, it helps us build homes and all sorts of other things. In, in the hands of someone like myself, however, who doesn't have a handy bone in his body, a, ha- a hammer can be an exceptionally destructive force. And I think the same is true of introspection. And so, so what I try to, what I've done in my career is really try to figure out when introspection is, is going off course, what can we do to bring it back on track? What are the science-based tools that exist to help us harness this capacity to, to basically live better lives? I appreciate you saying that, and that's one of the reasons I really wanted to talk to you, because the traditional thinking, I think for a lot of us, when we catch ourselves in those moments of, gosh, I'm too much in my own brain, I'm, I'm overcome too much with chatter, I'm not moving forward, is to seek out the advice and the counsel of others. And I think most of us have heard when we're struggling with something, we should seek out that support. Uh, but it turns out that the the who and the why of, and the how maybe even a bit, is really significant in how we seek out advice from others, isn't it? Absolutely. And I, I, you know, there's a lot of research which shows, to your point, Dave, that when we experience the kinds of strong negative emotions that, that are characteristic of chatter, we are intensely motivated to share those feelings with others, to go to other people, to get their support and advice. And that makes sense because you know, if there's one truism of the of the human condition that I've come across in my research, it's that we're much better at advising other people on their problems than we are ourselves. So it makes sense that when we ourselves are really struggling to find solutions, that we go to someone else to get their input. But the advice that you often hear is just go talk to someone. And it turns out that talking to other people isn't as simple as just opening your mouth and articulating what happened. There's a lot more to it than that. And sometimes the conversations we have with ourselves can actually make our chatter even worse. And so let me break down how that works. When we approach others to talk to them about our chatter, there are typically two needs that we're trying to fulfill. First, we've got we've got basic social and emotional needs. We want to be able to find someone who we can share our experience with someone who will empathically engage us, right? It feels really good to know that there's someone out there, whether it be a colleague or a loved one, who's willing to hear us out and learn about what we're feeling. And so describing what happens to us that might've driven a chatter response, that can be really useful for making us feel more connected to someone else. But simply venting our emotions, which is what many people often do when they talk to others. Venting alone is not sufficient. Venting our emotions makes us feel closer and more connected to the person we talk to, but it doesn't do anything to actually address the problem that is bringing us to that person in the first place. What what research shows is that if you want to address the source of the chatter, you need to do something else as well. You need to have that other person you're talking to help broaden your perspective, not just get you to talk about what you felt over and over and over again, but nudge you to consider alternative ways to think about the experience. So, so Dave, if you came to me with a problem, you know, you had this really obnoxious guest on your show who just kept talking over you, wouldn't listen to what you said, you didn't know what to do, so forth and so on. I might say something to you like, 
Well, but Dave, you know, you, that's probably happened before, right? Like, how have you managed that in the past? Or I may say something like, well, that sounds like a pretty, pretty upsetting interview, but you know, the good news is it's over and you've got another one scheduled next week and, you, mm. and you've got hundreds of these that you do. Or I might say, you know, I've been in that situation too and, and it stinks. Here's how I do it. So in other words, there are lots of different ways that when I'm in the, in the role of being your chatter advisor, when you're coming to me with, for support, there are lots of ways that I can help break you out of this narrow way of thinking about how awful your experience was that's driving your chatter response that can be useful. And the best kinds of social exchanges between two parties do that. They not only let you talk about what you felt, but they help broaden your perspective. Some of the research that those in your field have done on this is just really fascinating. And you write in the book, in study after study, it's been found talking to others about negative experiences doesn't help us recover in any meaningful way. Sure, sharing our emotions with others makes us feel closer to and more supported by the people we open up to, but the ways most of us commonly talk and listen to each other do little to reduce our chatter. Quite frequently, they exasperate it. And what really was interesting is some of the research that's come out around some of the shootings on college campuses and also that was done after September 11th on this point specifically. And I wonder if you could share a bit of that with, uh, with me. Absolutely. I mean, there have been many studies that have looked at people's tendency to express their emotions following negative experiences, tragic events. And by and large, the data don't support this idea that simply venting our feelings makes us feel better. In some cases, it has no appreciable effect on our well-being over time. But in other cases, it can actually make make people feel worse. And the way that works is, so how could, how is it possible that sharing our feelings might make it worse? Well, let's think about what might happen in, in what we, we often call in technical terms, a, a co-rumination session or a, or a vent session. Dave, you come to me with a problem. I ask you to tell me about it. I thought, oh, that stinks. He said, what to you? How did that make you feel? You know, you tell me more. That sounds awful. That guy sounds like a piece of garbage. So essentially what I'm doing is you and I are feeling really, really connected to each other, right? Yeah. We're thinking on the same level. I, I've got your back, but I'm essentially just throwing logs on the flame. I'm keeping the fire burning because all I'm doing is getting you to rehash what happened to you and what you felt. And that keeps our negative feelings alive. This is where Freud and Aristotle and others really got it wrong. Those luminaries got many things right, but uh, the idea of catharsis as a route to feeling better has not been borne out in the data. And I'm not the first to make this argument. This argument has been made many, many times over the past few decades. And what's so interesting to me is that there's a stubborn resistance that people display towards, towards really believing it. And I think the, the reason for that is it can often feel really good in the moment to share our feelings with someone else. We feel so connected with them. But I'd remind listeners that there are lots of things that we can do that feel good in the moment that aren't good for us over time. Drugs and the like being, being one example. Now, I don't mean to compare uh, addictive drugs to venting. There are clear differences between them. But the point is that sharing our emotions alone 
uh, is not sufficient. You do want to share your feelings. I'm not advocating that anyone keep their emotions bottled up inside. What I'm suggesting is that when you're struggling with chatter, find someone who you can not only share your feelings with, but find someone who additionally helps you broaden your perspective. It's, it's, it's achieving both of those, those goals that is really useful. I'm thinking about what you said a moment ago of being able to have that emotional need met, but also the cognitive need met and people helping us move forward. And you, you've you used the analogy in your work of you want to have a, a Captain Kirk and also a Spock <laughs> who's who's there. Uh, everything comes back to Star Trek, right? Yeah. Well, um, now, now, you know, well, well look, Dave, I am a, I am a professor. I am a PhD. <laughs> I'm not ashamed of some of the uh, inner nerdiness that is inside me. Yes. Yeah, it's really, it's being able to find someone who, and and people in your life who have elements of both of that, I think is really key. And one of the other parts you write is, research indicates that people who diversify their sources of support, turning to different relationships for different needs benefit the most. The most important point here is to think critically after a chatter-provoking event occurs and reflect on who helped you or who didn't. This is how you build your chatter board of advisors, and in the internet age, how we can find unprecedented new resources online. And that, to me, is super interesting because I've heard lots of ways of people doing this who have taken the advice of creating a board of advisors, and some people even go as far, and I've run into people who've, you know, they they have a literal board of people set up and they even meet regularly. And I, that's always felt a little weird to me uh, to, to do that. But I think what, what you're inviting us to do is to not necessarily, maybe it's that formal, but to be thinking about who are the kinds of people that can help you in different situations. Yeah. So I'm exceptionally deliberate when I think about how, when I, when I try to apply this science uh, to my own life and, and I do Dave, I mean, everything I talk about in the book, I, I believe in, and I do implement these things myself with my family. When it comes to the seeking out support from, from, from other people, I'm really careful about who I go to, to talk to for support. There are some people in my life who I love very much and who I'm pretty sure love me. I don't talk to them about my chatter. <laughs> I talk to them about other things. Uh, I go to people who are skilled at satisfying both of those, those social and cognitive needs, the people who can provide me with support and help broaden my perspective. And there are different people who do that, depending, different people I go to depending on the kind of chatter I'm experiencing. So if it's a problem in, in one of my personal relationships, my family, you know, there may be three people that I'll go to to speak to. At work, it's four or five other people. And there's very little overlap between those different circles. There is work showing that the more people you have to go to, the better when it comes to seeking out this kind of support. And so I like to use the metaphor of that board of advisors. I think it's appropriate here and can be very useful when thinking about how to really structure your world to maximally help you navigate chatter experiences. When you think about all the research you've done and your own personal experience of finding those key people, those four or five, like you mentioned in the professional environment, what is it that you have noticed and watched for that has 
forgive the term, but you know, filtered out maybe all the noise out there as far as advice and really identified to you that those people will be most helpful for you? Well, I'm glad you asked this question. Sometimes people ask me, well, how do you know if you're experiencing chatter? And my response is, you usually know it when you're when you're experiencing it yeah. because it's it's all consuming, right? And in my experience, what helps me filter out the relationships that help when it comes to chatter from those that don't is, do I find after talking to this person that I they actually help me come up with clear solutions to improve the chatter, to to lower the volume on that nasty inner monologue that is taking over? It's often really apparent, like there's some people who are, are especially adept at, at helping breaking me out of the tunnel vision that characterizes what happens when I'm in chatter, the perseverating. And other people just don't. And, and when I speak to the other people, although it's nice to share my emotions, like I don't feel better about the problem when I'm done. And so uh. it's really, that's the barometer for me. Like, is the other person actually helping me work through the problem? It's, it's noticeable. I am conscious of it when they do. And, and if I have a conversation with someone who is helpful, I tag that in my head and I remember it. And I go back to that person when I have other kinds of, of chatter that could benefit from their, from their support and advice. You know, people, you know, don't put on their business cards, excellent chatter advisor, you know, (laughs) maybe, maybe there'll one day be a rating system online. I wouldn't put it past the way technology is developing, but, but there is a bit of a trial and error with respect to this issue of how to find those people who you want to be on your board. But I'll tell you, once you have your board, it's, it's, it's really nice. A well-functioning board of advisors is a tremendous asset. I've got a pretty good one when it comes to both my my business and per- personal life, and I value it deeply. I feel similar, but I also feel like I probably haven't curated those conversations as well as I probably could. And as I reflect on past situations, I don't think I've consciously, you know, maybe I've subconsciously thought about it, but I don't think I've consciously thought when thinking about seeking advice from someone, when I've talked to this person in the past, did they help me to move forward on this problem or, or in past situations? Maybe I've done that subconsciously, but I think that that's a really useful invitation for all of us to be thinking about you know, and be more explicit and maybe even reflect on that or journal about that a bit because that would be, that'd be super useful to be intentional about. I think so. Uh, I've certainly benefited from it. And I think that's what the science, where the science points us, you know, but this idea, Dave, that you haven't necessarily been intentional about it. I think this characterizes many of the, many of the ways we, we try to harness our chatter in daily life. A lot of people have tools that they use to manage their chatter. And I think some of them are quite effective. In fact, I tell stories in my book about people using the using chatter fighting techniques without even being aware of it without knowing it i think we often stumble on tools as we're living our life and we don't necessarily realize we're using these tools but if they work we continue to do it and and what i tried to do in the book is bring the science to bear to really 
shine a spotlight on these tools that exist, like they're out there. And so I think the value that the science brings is in, in being able to tell us, okay, this is exactly what the tool is and here's how it works. And once we're aware of that, it allows us to be much, much more deliberate about how to incorporate these tools into our lives. And the hope is that doing so will make us be better leaders, be better partners, be better parents, live better lives. It's huge. And uh, one of the things I'm going to do coming out of this conversation is actually create a document and just to start tracking and noticing when I have conversations, even a step beyond you mentioned of, you know, kind of internal tagging in my head, but starting to really be more deliberate about who am I reaching out to for certain kinds of problems and is that helpful? And I'm also really curious about the other side of this too. A lot of folks in our listening community have people coming to them as advisors, as mentors. And a lot of us have gotten the advice, ironically, of don't give so much advice. In fact, we've done shows on stop giving so much advice to people, right? Because people want to be heard. They they say, you know, I want someone who's going to be empathetic with me. I don't want someone who's going to immediately jump in and try solving uh, my problem. And I'm I'm curious, how do you parse that when thinking about being the advisor, helping someone else, how do you walk that line between being someone who who's present and and shows empathy and at the same time not just getting caught in that place of potentially making it worse? Well, uh, it's a great question. And I think the first point to keep in mind is that if a person is coming to you explicitly for support, then you want to do two things. You want to be empathetic. Absolutely. You know, it, to go back to the the example, it's blending Captain Kirk and Spock. It's not being one or the other. Captain Kirk being the empathy guy and, and Spock being all rational advice. You want to let the person be heard and show that you care. But then at the appropriate time, once you have a pretty good lay of the territory, you that's when you want to gently start nudging them to start thinking about the the broader, you know, bigger picture. Now, exactly what that time point is, I wish I could give you a science-based recommendation. Have them talk for 46 seconds about what happened <laughs> and then switch into advice mode. I've I've surveyed this literature, I've done research in this space. I don't know of any data that can speak to that with that kind of precision to say this is exactly when you transition into advice mode from empathy mode. Yeah. This is where the artistry of being a good chatter advisor comes in. You need to be able to read the situation. We we do know for example that in the immediate aftermath that of an emotion being triggered, people aren't always ready to to they're not always receptive to getting the perspective broadening advice. So, you know, for some people you've got to let them cool down a little bit before going into advice mode. So there you, you do need to be flexible there in trying to figure out when to dive in with advice. So that's one one point is that you you want to do both of these things, empathy and support on the one hand, advice on the other, and you need to feel out when to make the switch. But there's another really important take home that we get from the science, which is this. Everything that I've just talked about pertains to situations where a person actively seeks out your support and advice. They come to you for help. Mm. There are many situations in life, both in the professional as well as personal setting, where I think a, uh, a person sees someone else struggling and they think they can help them. 
but that person hasn't come to you for help. And the question is, what do you do then? Do you jump in and give your advice or do you do something else? The research suggests that if people volunteer their advice when it's not asked for, that can actually backfire. It can backfire because what it does is it makes the person you're giving advice to feel insecure. It's an ego threat. They feel inadequate. So, you know, the example I like to give, I tell this story in the book, which unfortunately has repeated itself a few times in my personal life. You know, I've got two little kids and I'll see them struggling with something, their homework. And so I'll go over exceptionally well-intentioned. Hey, hey, Maya, let, let me show you how to do this. You're not doing it. I think I can help you do it better. Did I ask you for help? Do you not think I know how to do this? You know, and, and it elicits this kind of reactance and which is coming from a place that I've, I've insulted my daughter without intending to do so. And so it turns out that plays out across different domains. It's not just parent and kid. That happens between partners and relationships and, and in organizations too. And so in that situation where you register that someone could benefit from help, but they don't ask for it, there's a whole other category of, of things you can do. We call it invisible forms of support. And there are ways of helping without drawing attention to the fact that you're actually helping. And so I'll, I'll give you a couple examples. If my wife is filled with chatter, she's trying to deal with issues at work with her clients and there's kids stuff, I can do things to ease her burden, right? Without her having to ask, I can, I can pick up the dry cleaning and, and take care of dinner and make sure things around the house are in order, like simple things. But those simple things can ease her chatter burden. Apply to the work workplace, like, you know, do things as simple as one, one executive told me a story. I was interviewing her for the book. She was a consultant for a high-powered consulting agency, and she was leading a team, and they were on an engagement out of the office, and, and the team was super stressed. She picked up coffee and, and, and some muffins without being asked. It made a huge difference, right? Because her hungry employees didn't have to worry about how to get food into their system. I mean, that's, that's one tiny example of how you can help invisibly. Another way you can help invisibly is, is by trying to get advice to the people that you care about or are working with, but without shining a spotlight on their own inadequacy. So let's go into the university setting. You know, if I see that there's a talk being given on how to optimize your performance at work without getting stressed out, I'll say to my students, hey, why don't we go check this talk out, right? And so we all go and listen to it. And when we're in the talk, we hear things that are totally relevant to my student situation. And they're encoding that information and presumably benefiting it from it. But I haven't, it's not me saying, here's exactly what you need to do. So invisible support can be another powerful tool in the Chatter Advisors toolbox. I love the invitation to do that. And also the distinction between is someone seeking advice from you specifically or is are you just wanting to offer advice and what a wonderful way to think about how to approach that uh, this is so helpful to me thank you and i know it's going to be helpful to so many others ethan and we have just scratched the surface on so much in the book i'm uh, creating a board of advisors is one of uh, i don't know several dozen practical steps you have in the book so for those who really want to get a lot more perspective on how to handle the chatter that's going on in your brain. 
I think this is a wonderful resource. So I'd encourage you to check out the book. Uh, we're obviously going to have it linked up in this week's weekly leadership guide and the episode notes, of course. Ethan, before I let you go, one thing that leaders and experts are are always doing is they're learning, they're growing, and they're also changing their minds on things sometimes. As you reflect on your work over the last couple of years, what's one thing that you've changed your mind on? We really actually, you know, it has to do with what we talked about today. Um, I used to think that in chatter, I talk about different kinds of tools that we can use to manage our inner chatter, harmful chatter, things people could do on their own, thing, ways of harnessing our relationships and, and the world around us. I think early on in my career, I focused a lot on ways we can solve the problem on our own by rethinking our circumstances. And, and there's no question, those, there are lots of things we can do. Spent a lot of time talking about in the book. But the power of our relationships has th- that they can have on our well-being, on our lives, and on our chatter, I think I underestimated that early on in my career. And I value it a lot more now, both, both as a scientist in terms of the, the science that supports how powerful those relationships can be, but also just as a person living life. I really value the relationships, my my friends and loved ones, and the role that they play. So, uh, so I think I underestimated relationships, and um, I don't anymore. Ethan Cross is the author of Chatter: The Voice in Our Head, Why It Matters, and How to Harness It. Ethan, thank you so much for your work. Thanks so much for having me. Tons of fun. If you found this conversation today with Ethan useful, several related conversations that I'd also recommend. One of them is episode 437, How to Know What You Don't Know, with Art Markman. Art, also a psychology professor, he's at the University of Texas. And in that episode, we talked a lot about metacognition, the awareness of what a person knows and doesn't know, and some real practical things we can do to get outside of ourselves. It's a wonderful complement to this conversation, and one many of you told me has been useful to you in thinking about your own learning and growth. Episode 437 is where to go for that. I'd also recommend episode 458, The Way to Be More Coach-Like with Michael Bungay-Stanier. Michael's been on the show several times over the years, most recently talking about his book, The Advice Trap. And as you heard Ethan and I talking about today, the distinction between having empathy, but also at the same time being useful and providing direction. And you heard him make that distinction of the importance of that being permission-based. And of course, being coach-like is very much grounded in permission. And a lot of perspective from Michael in that conversation on how to avoid being that advice giver when it's not going to be helpful, and also when are the times that you might do that, and when you do, how to approach it. Episode 458 is where to go for that. And then also a very helpful complement to this conversation, episode 479, Leadership Lies We Tell Ourselves with Emily Leathers. Emily and I talked in detail about some of those typical lies that tend to come up in all of our minds, and yet they are lies or at least myths that we do need to work to overcome and get outside of ourselves a bit. And a lot of times an advisor, a mentor can be helpful with that. And we talked about 
identifying some of those patterns and how we can move beyond that. Another episode that many of you told me was really useful to you practically on taking next steps. And then finally, I'd recommend a free audio course that's inside the website. For those of you who have your free membership set up, I have a free audio course on making the most of mentoring. Of course, mentors are wonderful sources of great advice and perspective for us. And in that audio course, I talk about, yes, how to navigate some of the formal mentoring programs, but actually the audio course is much more focused on informal mentors and how do you reach out and make connections with people that aren't necessarily part of a formal mentoring program with you, either as mentor or mentee, but how do you really build relationships with people that you can learn from and also that they can learn from you? All of those resources you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. If you do not yet have your free membership set up at coachingforleaders.com, I'm inviting you to do that today. It's going to give you access to the entire library of content content since 2011, searchable by topic, so you can really zero in on the thing that is most important for you right now. We talked today about the importance of finding advisors that are right for you in context of what's important, and that the website's really designed to provide that for you so you can search for the topic you're looking for and get access to the right conversation with the right expert immediately. All of that inside the free membership. In addition, the audio courses. I mentioned the Making the Most of Mentoring audio course a moment ago. There are several others in there that will be useful to you, plus my entire library. And then you get access to the weekly leadership guide. Someone asked me recently, well, how do you get access to that weekly leadership guide? Just set up your free membership and it all ha- happens automatically. So you'll have access to everything inside the free membership, plus the weekly leadership guide plus everything else inside the website portal. Coachingforleaders.com is where to go to activate all of that right on the main page there, and you'll be off and running in just a few moments. Next week, I am glad to welcome uh, Pat Griffin to the show. He is from Dale Carnegie, an organization many of you know I know well, had the privilege of working for for many, many years. And one of the conversations uh, that I've been having recently with a lot of leaders is, how do I do a better job at writing a job description and defining someone's role. Pat and I are going to be diving in on that in detail next week on how to define a role and the practical steps for doing that. Join me for that conversation with Pat. Have a wonderful week, and I'll see you back next Monday.